Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my always surprising friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about information theory, what it is, where it comes from, how it works, and how it can be used to make comparative model inferences. Along the way, we also mention Pennsylvania 65000, The Time Lady, The Nobel Prize for Awesomeness, Juggling in Unicycles, Enigma, Imaginary Friends, Lemon Juice Code, Red Giants and White Dwarves, Bits, A Level 11 Paladin, The Hungarian Forest Gump, Snake Eyes and Boxcar Willies, The Pay the Reaper Divergence Criterion, and Getting Inspirations on a Train. We hope you enjoy today's episode. I have a question for you. Do you remember your phone number when you were a kid? This is going to be a little revealing to the audience in a somewhat embarrassing way. <laughs> Are you ready? That is Patrick's phone number. <laughs> wow. Did you come up with that or did your parents? Oh, no. That was mom. I was maybe five. Uh-huh. And we all sang the phone number song. Wow. Now, back in the day, it was in case I got abducted and then dropped right. off at a rest area somewhere. <laughs> but yep. I'm pretty sure if someone abducted you, you would be dropped off at the next rest area. <laughs> <laughs> you could just walk home. Yep. I didn't have a song. But my phone number was Sunset Three Nine Six Five Five. So it was. <laughs> what is that? A lyric out of Glenn Miller? <laughs> right. Pennsylvania Six Five Thousand. That's so dated, doesn't it? Sound like a '40s movie or something? Trixie, get me Sunset Three Nine Six Five Five. We used to also call the time lady. So if you wanted to know the exact time, there was a phone number that you could call. I don't know if you had that for us. It was TI4-1000. Good afternoon. At the tune, every daylight time will be 12, 38, and 50 seconds. No, again, I was a later generation than that. Wow. All right, what about if you needed to know someone's phone number, like in another city? Did you have some number that you called? Not that I remembered. We had the good old phone book, but that was it. So did you not grow up with 411 being the go-to information number? No. Are you familiar with the expression 411 to represent information? No. Come, come on! I'm not, like, what? Hey, give me the 411 on that. You, That's not an expression that you've heard? No. I have to think that you're the problem in this scenario. 411 is a thing. I hope it is, because... <laughs> sure, we'll go with that. Let me revise my statement. Oh, yeah, everybody knows that. I got two 17-year-olds. I hear that three times a day. There you go. That's what I needed to hear. All right. This is Annie and Christy. Um, we actually do know what the 411 means. We say that all the time. Sorry, Dad. You seem to be the weird one here. Again. Again. This particular episode is going to be about information. There's this particular area of statistics that sometimes is really prominent in things that you and I do, and sometimes it kind of lurks in the background. That's something called information theory. A lot of what we do is built on some of the principles of information theory. And what I thought I would do is try to give people the 411 on information theory in this particular episode, help people understand what it is, what it does, how it touches on a lot of things that we do. Could I ask a legit question? Yeah. You're the one who picked this topic. Mm -hmm. This is going to drop April 12th. 
Tell me you did not pick the entire topic because it's close to April 11th, which is 4-1-1. Moving on. We... <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to start this story whether or not you're with me. <laughs> Like I have a choice at this point. Our story starts out with someone that I think hands down should have won a Nobel Prize, Claude Shannon. I don't know why he didn't win the Nobel Prize. It might be because he was in a field that didn't align particularly well with the Nobel categories. Like I know, for example, there's no Nobel Prize specifically for mathematics. There's the Abel Prize, which Norway offers. So who's someone who should have won a Nobel Prize in your mind? Ooh, well, there's an obvious one. <laughs> okay. Cal Ripken Jr. Sure, the Iron Man. 21 seasons, I think, with your Baltimore Orioles. The same Baltimore Orioles where you pretended to be an architect to get me down to the field uh, when we walked in the front <laughs> gates. <laughs> So people, as long as you roll papers up and point to things, everybody thinks you're an architect. Yep. But he had 2,632 straight game starts. He said, you just show up and do your job and good things happen. Please welcome the Iron Man of Baseball, Cal Ripken. He is my hero. Cal Ripken should have won the Nobel Prize for awesomeness. Is there a Nobel Prize for awesomeness? <laughs> I'm scrolling through the Swedish categories that they have. I'm not seeing awesomeness specifically. There was this guy named Claude Shannon. And Claude Shannon worked in the Bell Labs in the 1940s and later. But he was an electrical engineer. And by all accounts, obviously a very, very bright guy, as you'll come to understand. But also kind of a quirky guy, like the guy who could juggle, the guy who could ride a unicycle down the hall. So he was this eccentric but really, really smart guy. And one of his passions was cryptography. So how we encode things, how we break codes. And it, it turns out that was a particularly important thing to know how to do during the Second World War. Oh, now you got my attention. Enigma. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a neuron fired. For God's sake, that's amazing. Did you used to write like coded letters to friends or anything as a kid? My imaginary friends. <laughs> I never got coded letters back. It was kind of strange. <laughs> We had our own symbol system, but we also wrote letters in lemon juice. So if you take a piece of paper and you write in lemon juice, it's invisible. But then if you hold it over like a really hot bulb, a 100-watt bulb, then the letters actually start to turn brown and you can read the secret message. That's how they cracked the Soviet code back <laughs> in the Cold War. Anyway, so this Claude Shannon guy had some amazing friends also in the 1940s. One of them who would sort of sneak over was Alan Turing. The Alan Turing would come over from London, hang out at Bell Labs, and <laughs> apparently they would sit there and have tea and not talk about all the things that they were doing during the Second World War. I like that. What are you up to? Nothing. What are you up to? Nothing. <laughs> all right. Want to go ride unicycles? Yeah! <laughs> Another friend of his was John von Neumann, one of the leading computer scientists of the time. Between Alan Turing and John von Neumann, I mean, this guy was really hooked up in terms of people who were, I believe the tired term for me is thought leaders, but they actually were. So Shannon had an incredibly ambitious goal, and that was to try to figure out how he could quantify any type of communication. And in his view, pretty much everything we do is communication, whether it's talking or pictures or movies or art or music. 
the spread of disease. All of these things are variations on communication. And he wanted to come up with a mathematical model that could capture the information that was contained in communication. Whatever information means in each of those contexts, that was his goal. And that sounds so unbelievably ambitious that it sounds made up. I actually have two thoughts on that. Is one is it must have been an amazing place to be in Bell Labs during oh the forties and fifties. As people forget the incredible achievements that came out of their research division, yeah, and ostensibly it was a business endeavor. But they had some of the best scientists in the world working there at various times. It's absolutely remarkable. But the other one is exactly in that same period of time of not only coming out of World War II, but then moving into the Cold War. Yeah. And that notion of cryptography, of imposing structure on chaos through numerical analysis is just mind-boggling. Yeah. And Claude Shannon wrote a paper that is like the paper, the landmark paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communication in 1948. And it laid the foundation for trying to encode what he termed information. And it lays the foundation for what we now refer to as information theory. How do we quantify information? How do we communicate that information? How much information is contained in messages? And this caught on in a huge way. Engineers found ways to use it, physicists, psychologists. We obviously use information, right? The word information is something that's certainly on our radar. And it's just got its tentacles into so many things. So I want to set the stage for this. I'm going to think of a number between 1 and 32, and I want you to try to guess that number. Between 1 and 32, any number. Let me make this easier. You can ask a series of yes-no questions to try and home in on that if that's what you like. All right. I know you reasonably well. It's Friday. You have these goofball superstition beliefs. It's 13. Screw you. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I'm not talking I to you. I had a one in 30 second chance on that. <laughs> all right, all right. We're going to start that again. I'm thinking of a number between one and 32. You can ask a series of yes, no questions and, and stop using your psychology, <laughs> neuroscience. I'm not sure which it is. Um. Okay. Is it even? No. Is it less than 16? Yes. Is it a prime number? Yes. Is it less than 13? Yes. Is it three? No. Is it five? No. Is it seven? Yes, it is seven. Okay, it's oh seven. All right. So I wouldn't exactly stand up and take a bow if, if I were you. It's, it's entirely possible you could have been more systematic about that. So I did this with Quinn, right? Your 17-year-old son. My son. Actually, he's 16. So the way Quinn approached it is he said, is your number 16 or below? Which is what I asked. Sure it was. And then he asked, <laughs> is it eight or below? And so he homed in on that. And he said, in the end, I could get any number in five questions or less. Now, it took you, I think, seven or eight <laughs> questions to do it. But he, unlike you, is very logical in his thinking and I said, so how do you get that? You can get it in five questions. And he said, well, you can only split it five times, right? You split 32 once to 16, twice to eight, three times to four, another time to two, and then you're down to the last two. 
And he's exactly right. If you think about it as this tree branching out, it's going to branch up to five times before you hit the number. That's not the only way to do it. You could have another series of questions like, uh, is it five? Uh, uh, but that might be slightly less efficient than using a more principled approach. I would like you over dinner tonight to remind Quinn that I can pick him up and throw him down a flight of stairs if I feel like it. <laughs> Just point that out if you All wouldn't right, mind. Uh, I'll mention that. So in that case, you know, when you're guessing a number, each question that you ask, if you say, is your number 16 or below? I say yes or no. There's the same amount of surprise if I say yes or I say no. You're like, oh, okay. And then you say, is it below eight? There's not a lot of surprise each time. You sort of plod along until you hit it. What if I said to you, the sun will rise tomorrow? How surprising is that statement to you? That would be very low surprise. Very low surprise, exactly right. What if I told you that the sun is going to go supernova tomorrow and become a supermassive black hole? Our sun is not big enough to be a black hole. It will go red giant and then be a white dwarf. Okay. So the surprise would be very, very high. It would be very high. That's right. In your case, it would be infinitely high because you just said it couldn't even possibly happen, right? Well, and also we would all be atomized when that happened. So I wouldn't have a real recollection of being surprised. <laughs> hey, I didn't expect... <laughs> So when you go through that process of guessing my number at each one of those question points, you know, the level of surprise is more or less the same irrespective of what answer I give. When we go through day to day and I tell you, hey, the sun is going to rise today, hey, the sun is going to rise today, hey, the sun, and yes, I know the sun doesn't rise, the earth rotates. Overall, there's not a lot of surprise unless I tell you the sun is not going to rise on a given day and fine red giant white dwarf, whatever. That would contain some amount of surprise. But on average, there's not a whole lot of surprise that goes on from day to day. Well, one of the key concepts in information theory is this notion of surprise and how we quantify surprise. And it's going to relate to probability, which is not in and of itself very surprising. So I'm going to give you three scenarios. You're going to have to keep track of a little bit of stuff in your head right now. Here we go. Imagine you have a coin and the probability of it coming up heads is one in eight. Okay. I'm writing this down, actually. So a measure of surprise, not the measure we're ultimately going to get to, but a measure that would capture some degree of surprise if I told you, hey, I flipped a heads, would be one over that probability. So if you've got a one in eight shot, we could say one over that probability. Well, it just gets you right back to eight. We could say, like, I'm eight surprised, whatever that means. That's one way to operationalize how surprised you are, right? So if I tell you I flipped a heads, you'd go, wow, there was only one in eight shot. I'm somewhat surprised that you did. Not off the chart surprised, right? But somewhat surprised. Scenario two, I have a coin that has a 50-50 shot of coming up heads. So if I tell you, hey, Patrick, I just flipped a heads, how would you characterize your surprise? I'd say, yeah, that's what you'd expect half the time. That's right. Much more nonplussed, much less plussed. <laughs> what did we decide on that one? It was equally likely. Can we just go with that? Okay. <laughs> and if we think about this in terms of the probability and its reciprocal, like we did before, we could say that whereas before you would have been eight surprised, now you are too surprised, one over 0.5. That's one way to characterize surprise. So now if I tell you I have a coin that will only come up heads, and I tell you I flipped a heads, how surprised are you? None surprised. None surprised. Well, if we think about this following the pattern that we've been doing, one over the probability, in that case, the probability of the heads is one. So one over one gives us a number one. 
And while that's the smallest of all the numbers we've had so far, the idea of one characterizing the absence of surprise is a little bit funky. And so historically, the decision was made to, instead of use one over the probability as a measure of how surprising a particular event is, the log of that was taken. And it was originally a base two log. Remind listeners what a base two log is. Do you want to do that, Patrick? No, no, no. You're on a roll. I don't want to interrupt. Why don't you go ahead? I appreciate your commitment to the flow of pedagogy. Yeah, so the logarithm base two of a particular number is what power would you have to raise the number two to to equal that particular number? So the log base two of eight, what power would you have to raise two to to get to the number eight? The answer is three. The log base two of eight is three. The log base two of the number two, do you want to do this one? What power do you have to raise two to to get two? Go ahead. You're on a roll. (laughs) Okay. It would be one. And then if we have the number one and we wanted to take the log base two of one, what power would we have to raise two to to make it one? And the answer is zero. Something to the zero power gives us one. So a measure of surprise that was used in the development of the concept of information was a log base two of one over the probability. So for that coin that had a one in eight shot of turning up heads, we would say that there is three units of surprise. And for the coin that had a 50-50 shot, we would say there is one unit of surprise. And for the coin that had only heads to come up, we would say there is zero units of surprise, zero bits of surprise. In fact, the term bit comes from this. I don't mean the English term bit, but the computer term bit, binary digit, because when you have a 50-50 coin, one binary digit can help you to differentiate between a heads and a tails. But if you have a coin that only comes up heads one in eight times, that's essentially like having three coins worth of information, right? The probability a half, a half, a half. And if you have a coin that only comes up heads, there's no point in having the coin at all because it has zero surprise. It has zero bits of information to be able to contribute. So that nicely bounds it at zero, right? Yes, that's exactly right. So if we go back to when I asked you to guess my number... (laughs) Let's go back to the second time (laughs) I asked you to guess my number out of 32. We could say, well, the chance of getting that right on the first shot without your psychobabble would be a 1 out of 32. The inverse of that is 32, and the log base 2 of that is 5, meaning that being able to get that number on a single guess is like 5 bits of information. That's pretty incredible. And this quantity that we're talking about right now for a particular event, which is the log base 2 of the reciprocal of the probability, this measure of surprise has the name entropy. I don't know if that's a term that has come up in your life at all. I've encountered that more in the physical sciences, but it certainly exists in statistical literature as well. Particularly if you talk about things like time series analysis, that's a term that occasionally comes up. Absolutely. And right now I'm talking about it in the context of a single event, like flipping a heads. But usually it is talked about, and for our purposes, it's going to be talked about in terms of the surprise associated with every possible event in a probability distribution. So if we have a coin that comes up heads one in eight times, or P of 0.125, then the probability of tails is 0.875. So we could figure out how much of this surprise or entropy is associated with each of those outcomes And then we could average them so that we have a sense of how much of this entropy exists across the entire distribution. 
So for the coin that we have that is 0.125 heads and 0.875 tails, there's a surprise associated with the heads of three because we would have to raise two to the third power. The surprise associated with getting a tails is going to be much smaller because a tails is much, much more likely. And if we went ahead and took the reciprocal of that probability in the log base two, the surprise associated with flipping a tails would be 0.193. And even if we don't necessarily have some internal metric for that, that is low surprise, certainly relative to the heads that we have. Now, if we take an average of those two numbers, a three, which is the surprise associated with the heads for that coin, and a 0.193, which is the surprise associated with the tails, and we average those two, we don't just want to add them up and divide by two because one of those events is far more likely, one of those events is far less likely, so we're going to weight them in this average according to the probability of their occurrence. So if you got one and eight shot of getting heads and seven eighths shot of getting tails, we're going to weight those two measures of surprise. And overall, we get an average entropy of 0.544. That's some measure of information associated with the system, some measure of chaos, some measure of surprise. There's so many different terms that are going to be attached to this. But one way to think about it, and this is going to be really, (laughs) really weird, But this notion of entropy of 0.544 is, if we want to put it in terms that we might better understand, it would be like having a coin that if we took two and raised it to that power, that coin would have about 1.46 sides. So that's less than having two sides. And that's because this coin has less what we might feel is surprise overall associated with it, because most of the time it's going to give us tails. So this idea of 0.544 entropy sometimes is characterized back in terms of, well, how many sides would that coin have to have to correspond to this? That is for a coin that has a one and eight shot of a heads versus a seven and eight shot of tails. I really like that notion of the sidedness of the coin. One of my kids is way into Dungeons and Dragons and the number of die that they have that are multifaceted. I like actually that you brought up Dungeons and Dragons. It's like having a die that has not even two sides. It has 1.46 sides. So if you roll that die, there's not a lot of surprise associated with it. But if we had, I'm still using the coin example, if we had a coin that had a 0.5 chance of heads and a 0.5 chance of tails, and we computed that thing that we're calling surprise, the log base two of the reciprocal of probability, there is one unit of surprise associated with heads. There's one unit of surprise associated with tails. And if we average each of those one units of surprise, overall, we have one unit of entropy associated with that. And not surprisingly, that would be like having a coin with two raised to that one power, like having a coin with two sides. And that really is sort of like our go-to metric, right? A coin with two evenly probable sides has one bit of information. The coin that has a greater chance of tails has a smaller amount of information. And if we extend that all the way to that weird coin that I said that only only flips heads, the amount of surprise associated with heads, it's got a probability of one. So you take the reciprocal of that probability, you still get one log base two. The surprise associated with the coin coming up heads is zero. 
The surprise associated with the coin coming up tails is technically undefined, but it doesn't matter because there's no probability associated with it. So if you take the average of the surprise of the two outcomes, all you got is the one outcome, the heads coming up. And so it is like having a coin with one side and that's not so surprising. Or in your case, a Dungeons and Dragons die that has only one side. Ooh, I rolled a scimitar. I don't know what your people do. I played Dungeons and Dragons once in my life. It was high school. It was all paper and pencil. I got some kind of weapon on a roll that was fairly rare. And messing around, this guy was hassling me. And so I said, I pointed at him and unleashed the fury of whatever. <laughs> well, evidently, that there's no joking around in Dungeons and Dragons. And they took that out as an attack on my friend and I killed him, which was a character he had been developing for months and months. And they all quit and kicked me out of the group. That's a true story. <laughs> you do not mess with a level 11 paladin. I... Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That... What? Huh? <laughs> I don't know. Um, so for these three coins that we were talking about, one that has a much greater chance of getting tails... It had this entropy of 0.544, and the coin that was a 50-50 shot had one unit of entropy across heads and tail possibilities. And then the coin that had no shot of tails, only a shot of heads, had zero entropy associated with it. In fact, Shannon derived this particular quantity, which is like that weighted average amount of surprise across all of the outcomes in a particular space, but he didn't even know what to call it. And so the story goes that John von Neumann was there at Bell Labs and Shannon was having a conversation with this guy who was like huge in terms of math and physics and computer science, complete rock star. And the story goes that John von Neumann told him to call it entropy because what he was talking about was related to things in physics from Boltzmann and physical chemistry. And then the story goes that von Neumann also added, besides no one really knows what entropy is, so you just... just <laughs> Just call it that and no one will mess with you. I will tell you just a little side note that for me is really cool. Von Neumann was actually a good friend of my grandmother's. That is really, really cool. So my grandmother, I've mentioned my grandmother a whole lot of times. This is just so weird. She trained with Maria Montessori. She was friends with Anna Freud and met Sigmund Freud at their home in Vienna. And she was friends with John von Neumann when she emigrated to the United States after the Second World War because there was this very tight-knit Hungarian community in New York City. And she and Janos, as she called him, became very good friends, which is just crazy. In fact, one of my favorite things was she and von Neumann went on a car trip to Princeton so that my grandmother could have a long lunch with Albert Einstein, just the two of them, a four-hour lunch with Einstein. How crazy is that? That is quite remarkable. I mean, she's like this little Hungarian forest gump who just traveled through all of these circles. So I am two degrees of separation from von Neumann three to Claude Shannon, which is kind of cool. But she did not, to my knowledge, ever hang out with Kevin Bacon. All right. But I digress. All right. So I'm going to take these ideas and move them up into slightly more complex distributions. Right now, we were just doing with a distribution of heads and tails, right? Now I'm going to imagine that we have a distribution where I have the numbers 2 through 12, not 1 through 11, 2 through 12. So there are 11 possibilities there. Imagine it's like an 11-sided die. My understanding is that it would be called a hendecahedron or an undecahedron or an endecahedron. 
What is that? Dodecahedron. Dodecahedron. Jesus. I don't know what you're doing, but it's very strange and your father's trying to worry. It ends in decahedron, right? So just put whatever prefix you want and congratulations, you're like a level one dwarf in Dungeons and Dragons. And yes, I know there are people out there who are like, what? I can't believe he just said that. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know who you are. So let's imagine for simplicity that each side of this 11-sided die had an even chance of being flipped. So one out of 11 shot. If we figured out the surprise associated with each of those numbers, 2 through 12, and then average that amount of surprise, it turns out that this Shannon entropy would be 3.46. We would say that this die has 3.46 bits of information associated with it overall. Now, using that as a frame of reference where the numbers 2 through 12 are evenly likely, let's think about rolling two six-sided dice. If I tell you snake eyes, you know what that is. Yep, snake eyes and boxcar willies. Snake eyes are two ones and boxcar willies are two sixes. Excellent. What's the chance of getting snake eyes? One in 36. One in 36. And boxcar willies? I don't know about the willy, but... Boxcar willies. Come on, dude. No, boxcars I knew. For I didn't... somebody who had a Pennsylvania 65,000 <laughs> phone number, I kind of would figure you know what boxcar willies are. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is also one in 36. There you go. So do your people have some fancy name for rolling a seven? It's just throwing a seven or rolling a seven. So (laughs) somewhat less creative. No cool name like that. All right. So do you know what the chance of throwing a seven is? Six thirty-sixths. Wow. That was really impressive. So rolling a two or rolling a 12 would be a lot more surprising, right? That would have more surprise than rolling a seven because there's a greater chance of rolling a seven. And we could actually quantify rolling a two in terms of its surprise. If we took the inverse of the probability and took the log base two, we would get a 5.17, which in and of itself might not hold a ton of meaning to you, but relative to rolling a seven, the surprise associated with rolling a seven would only be a 2.58. So there's a lot more surprise associated with rolling a two or rolling a 12 than there would be rolling a seven. And if we average the surprise associated with a two, three, four, all the way up to 12, the overall average surprise would be a 3.27. And if we think about that in terms of coins, that would be like having a 2 raised to the 3.27 power. A coin with 9.65 sides, or like having a die with 9.65 sides that were equally probable. So whereas the other die, where all the numbers were equally likely, was like having an 11-sided die, having a die where some of the numbers are a lot more probable than others overall has less information. That would be like having a diploid 9.65 sides. So what we're doing is we're quantifying the amount of information associated with the entire distribution through this measure called entropy. And one way you can think about it in terms of distributions, and this is gonna become increasingly important to us because we think about distributions all the time, is you can think about entropy as almost being how flat, a measure of how flat the distribution is. The flatter the distribution, the more information there is, the more peaked the distribution, overall the less information because we are less surprised by those events that are closer to the peak and more surprised by those events that are away from the peak. So entropy can be tied to this idea of a distribution and that's gonna be really, really important for us. Could I throw you a legit question? Yep. 
I'm just trying to get my head around what is the motivation for doing this when we have a binomial probability mass function, we have a moment generating function, we can derive probabilities. What's the value added to moving to this entropy-like expression? Well, first of all, the idea of entropy is not just for these kinds of discrete distributions that I've been talking about. It also exists for continuous distributions. And that's important because you and I, although we deal sometimes with these discrete distributions, we deal a lot more with distributions that are either continuous or we lie to ourselves (laughs) and say that they're continuous, right? So the idea here applies to distributions that have continuity, and that might not be enough cell for you yet, but I'm getting there. Okay. With regard to Claude Shannon and the idea that he was developing this kind of mathematics for communication systems, let me give you an example to just close that loop and then bring it into the world that you and I tend to live in. Have you ever read one of those passages that several of the letters in each word have been replaced with almost seemingly random letters and you can still read the passage perfectly? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. There's some classic cognitive psychology experiments where how many can you punch out and still understand the word through the context? Yeah. There's some really cool studies where you read paragraphs and... There's some words that you can omit almost entirely, but still read the word based on the information around it. Oh, that was a perfect description. Exactly right. And what that signifies is that not all of the letters in a message carry the same amount of information. There are some that, you know, if you eliminated them, you would go, I have no idea what this is saying. But there are others that are really superfluous and you can put blanks there, you can throw in random letters, and you read that paragraph as if there was nothing wrong with it. It's weird, right? You read it and you go, hey, how does my brain know all of this? If I tell you I'm thinking of a five-letter word and I ask you what the first letter of that word is, what do you think the first letter of that word is? S. Okay. You're wrong. (laughs) Sorry. But you had 26 letters in our alphabet anyway. You had 26 letters to choose from. I'm going to tell you it's a Q. Now I'm going to say what's the second letter? U. Exactly right. So that first letter contained a lot more information. Second letter, basically no information because in our language anyway, the letter U almost always follows Q. And if we know that U is that second letter, then the third letter is almost certainly going to be a vowel. And what Shannon was trying to help us to understand is that in our communications, not all letters contain the same amount of value in communicating a particular message. And we do this all the time, maybe not you, but our kids do this all the time when they're texting, right? They have distilled entire conversations down to just a few letters. Or an eggplant emoji. So the idea here is that there's a lot more communication that can happen, but all the stuff that fills in the middle, we understand, whether it's via convention or just our understanding of how language works, that not everything in there is worthwhile. And so we can distill down WTF from a somewhat longer phrase. Or And Shannon was interested in developing a mathematical model to understand how much information is there really in communication and how can we make it, A, more efficient, and then B, encryptable. Now, obviously, there's a lot more to that, 
But this isn't in the end about communication theory. I want to bring it back to information theory and distributions. You and I deal with distributions all the time. And every time we use a model, one way to think about what we're doing with that model is trying to represent the distribution of data through some number of moving parts, whether you think about them as knobs or sliders or whatever. We call those in our models the parameters. And when you and I do structural equation models, for example, we have parameters associated with that model. But at the end of the day, what those are are governors of a particular distribution, a particular model-implied distribution. And if we think about the data that we have as containing a certain amount of information and a certain amount of noise, what we are trying to do is come up with a model that has really good fidelity to the underlying process, the underlying signal, while cutting through the noise. So the idea of information associated with models and randomness and noise and systems is something that Shannon's work helped us to try to think about when we get into the modeling that we're going to do. In fact, something that you and I have talked about a lot, both computationally, I would say, and also philosophically, has to do with this idea of underfitting versus overfitting of our models. So we want to have this model that finds that sweet spot that has enough parameters to be able to explain what's going on satisfactorily, right? To have fidelity to the signal, but not so many parameters that it's fitting more than just the process that's operating underlying the data, but it also starts fitting the noise, right? If someone said, hey, we want you to come up with a model that completely explains what's going on. I would just add all the parameters under the sun that I needed to until I perfectly nailed every single contour of the distribution. And so we try to find that sweet spot, which is really tricky to do, where Sir William of Ockham tells us, it is vain to do with more what can be done with fewer. And so we try to find that balance where we are not underfitting, right? Not where we are failing to capture the process, but not overfitting where we're starting to pick up some of the noise. So it's the classic crossing courage with close enough for government work. That's exactly right. We've talked on prior episodes as courage is numerically represented in your degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. So we start the game, let's say in SEM, but it generalizes to a whole lot of modeling frameworks. We start the game knowing we can guarantee a win. And a win is perfectly representing the characteristics of the data that we observed in our sample. And it is an uninteresting game because no matter what data you email me, I can perfectly reproduce the covariances, variances, and means by fitting a model. How do I do that? I do it by saturation. I estimate as many parameters as there are observed moments in our sample data. So it's kind of funny. We all play a game that we know we can win but we don't always want to win because what we want to do is impose restrictions on the parameter space to say, I'm going to attempt to reproduce the characteristics of my observed sample data using fewer than all the pieces of information that I observed. And that's where we wander out into the minefield of model fit and goodness of fit and test statistics and modification indices and all of that. So that's what I mean by the courage is how many 
restrictions can we impose on our parameter space? And the close enough for government work is we are going to get misfit because of those restrictions. How much can we live with and still look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning and say, I'm not perfectly reproducing my data, but I'm pretty close and it's close enough for me. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I love that. That is the perfect tension between these two things, between fit and parsimony. And I'm going to use that theme in some of the things that I'm going to talk about in just a second. I love that setup. So what that means, though, is that when you fit a model that doesn't have all the moving parts that would saturate it, in some ways, with respect to our sample, with respect to the data that we have, we're giving up some information. We're giving up the ability to explain some of that stuff. So in the example that I had earlier, if the truth were that the numbers 2 through 12 occurred with probabilities that are associated with rolling two dice and adding them up, that would describe a particular probability distribution. If someone said, I think the model is that all the numbers 2 through 12 are equally probable, using that to describe what actually would be going on in the data, we would experience this loss of information, right? We would be throwing some stuff out, presumably. And the question that is relevant here and that relates to something that you were just talking about has to do with a comparison of two distributions, a distribution that is associated with one model and a distribution that is associated with could be another model, could be a distribution that is associated with truth, could be a distribution associated with our data. There is this inherent need to talk about how two distributions relate to each other in order to gauge how well one model is doing with respect to some other frame of reference. And it was back in the mid-1900s, so after when Shannon was working in the 1940s, in the 1950s, Kolbach and Liebler came up with a way to quantify the degree of separation between two probability distributions. So we can think about any two probability distributions that we want, like the one that I said where we have equal probabilities of the numbers 2 through 12. We could think about the other distribution as the probabilities associated with throwing and summing two six-sided dice. We could think about it as the difference between a normal curve and a t-distribution with three degrees of freedom. Whatever two distributions we have, Kolbach and Liebler came up with a measure that is now called KL divergence. And sometimes people call it a measure of distance. That's really not such a great term for it. Divergence is probably a little bit better, or sometimes people call it relative entropy. But the idea is to try to get a sense of how different these two distributions are. Or if you think of one of those distributions as some frame of reference, the question is, how much information do you lose when you use a model associated with a second distribution on a process that's actually governed by a first distribution? And the idea of the KL divergence is so simple. If you think about it for a discrete distribution, like for the numbers 2 through 12, there's an amount of surprise or entropy associated with each number. And in the model that says the numbers are all equally likely, each number has some degree of surprise or entropy. And in the other model where the numbers probabilities are those that are associated with rolling and summing two six-sided dice, each number has a different amount of surprise or entropy. So number by number, 2 through 12, how different is the entropy? KL divergence literally does the subtraction for each entropy value. And then it aggregates those differences across the whole set of values. But just like the entropy for a single distribution, it adds them up by weighting them according to the probabilities of each number in the distribution. 
wait a minute, which distribution does it use to weight it? That is a good question. That means if I treat the equal probability model as some reference distribution, I will get one measure of KL divergence, which is how much the dice summing distribution diverges from the reference equal probability distribution. And if I treat the dice summing probability distribution as the reference distribution, I will get a different measure of KL divergence, which will be how much the equal probability distribution diverges from the reference dice summing distribution. Now, this is why we don't call it a distance, this asymmetry. Instead, we call it divergence. But it's such a simple idea, right? The probability weighted sum of the differences in entropy for each value in the distribution, and that's why it's called relative entropy. And even though I described it using that discrete 2 through 12 distribution, it exists for continuous distributions too. It is beautiful, it is simple, it is understandable, and it builds on all the Shannon foundational stuff. And it's directly on point for what we care about when we are doing modeling. How much information do we lose when we choose one model over another? And that's what we do all the time, right? That's exactly what you described, where we have some model that is more parsimonious, that has more courage, that has more degrees of freedom and has fewer parameters. We know that we're not going to be able to reproduce the data perfectly. One reasonable question is, how much gap then is there between a model that perfectly reproduces those data and the model that we hold in our hand? And the Kolbeck-Liebler divergence measure is something that in the 1950s was developed to be able to characterize how different two distributions might be from each other. And see, I would reframe that as the pay the reaper divergence criterion. <laughs> Right? You have a model mm -hmm. and you're asking, what is the cost to my model fit of me imposing these restrictions? Dude, how have I not won a Nobel Prize myself? <laughs> uh huh. So, yeah, I love that paying the Reaper because that's exactly what happens, right? There's a degree of disparity between these two distributions, and that's what you're willing to pay because you think that the gap between the two, or at least you hope the gap between the two, really represents noise and that your model in the end is capturing the signal. Now, if my sole goal were to minimize the gap between the distribution implied by my model and the distribution that the data actually have, as you said, right, you just saturate that and then there is no divergence between those two. Kolbach and Liebler came up with this measure of divergence as a way to gauge the distinction between two distributions. But then what we could do in theory is if I had, let's say, three candidate models, right? Model one, model two, model three, all of which imply certain distributions. And I had some reference distribution, whether it's another model, whether it's associated with the data, whatever. I can look at the divergence of each of those models with reference to that base model, that comparison model, and I can tell you which of these three is closer. And if that's my criterion for choosing, then I would say, oh, well, I pick model two because it's the one that has the least divergence from whatever that base model is that we might be using. So the idea that Kolbeck and Liebler had in the 1950s was a really powerful one with the ever so slight problem that it is obviously biased in terms of less courageous models. When someone starts throwing more parameters in there, then the model just goes and starts sucking right up to the data. The question is, how do we correct for that? How do we adjust for that lack of courage? And that moves us into the 1970s where Akaike came in and went through a lot of amazing math and in the end sort of united Boltzmann and some of the original entropy stuff done in the 1800s. 
Fisher information, maximum likelihood. He pulled all of this into the same place. And, oh, it's just so beautiful. What he did is he figured out the degree of bias associated with Kullback-Liebler divergence. And it comes out to be this beautiful little E equals MC squared formula where it includes some information about the likelihood associated with the data, some measure of fit. And then a measure that has to do with the number of parameters in the model, which for you is associated with courage. So he came up with this beautiful Akaike information criterion, an information criterion because it was derived from work of Shannon that led into work by Kolbach and Liebler and came up with the AIC. And we use the AIC all the time. I don't know if this is apocryphal and someone out there might know this, but in a talk recently, I heard someone tell a story about Akaike developing that index sitting on a train, Mm. looking out the window, and he had some insight. It's the equivalent of a thinking log. Mm -hmm. I love that. That's kind of better than the guinea pig thing for Sewell Wright. A little more poetic, I think. But what I like about what you're raising is that allows us to have nested models where we do formal likelihood ratio tests, where we literally estimate model A and get the chi-square and degrees of freedom. We estimate model B and get the chi-square and degrees of freedom. And we subtract the two and the difference is distributed as a chi-square. That only works when the models are nested. And what you're moving into is shrugging and saying, okay, wise guy, what if they're not nested? Well, that's where we move into the land of information-based model evaluation. Right, which is not at all a significance test, right? It's a different criterion. And a couple of the key insights that he apparently had on that train, one is that if I were comparing model one, model two, and model three to some baseline model, whatever that is, What he showed is we really can come up with this particular index for each of the models and the baseline model kind of cancels out (laughs) all of these comparisons. So when you compute an AIC and there are different formulations for the AIC, it can be written in a variety of ways. One way is twice the number of model parameters minus twice the log likelihood associated with your particular model. So that is that balance of courage versus fit that comes into play. What he showed is that that's really all you need. And that is, in a way, a measure of generalizability. It's a flawed measure of generalizability. But the idea is that that correction that we put in there, sometimes people will call it a penalty that has to do with how many parameters there are. That correction that we have is something that gives us a sense of how much we would expect these results to replicate. And it's not unlike what we do just in principle when we compute an adjusted R-squared, right? The R-squared that we have is jacked up for our particular sample. But if we want to know something about this model in subsequent samples, there's this little correction that has to do with degrees of freedom. Well, it's the same idea here that we have some overall measure of fit in the form of some function of the log likelihood. And we want to adjust that a little bit for something that has to do with how parsimonious the model is. So it's all brilliant elegant comes together so beautifully. And it does exactly what you said. It allows us to make comparisons among models. And what you said is completely right, that when we have models that are nested, we can do a statistical test. Akayake would say, ah, who cares? We can use this index to rank models in terms of their balance between fit and parsimony. 
whether they're nested or not. Who cares? Lay out your models. The one with the lowest AIC, that best balance of fit and parsimony, is the one that you would choose from among those, even if they are nested. But it doesn't matter, right? It's this great index that cuts across all different types. You know, you and I are very accustomed to comparing models that might be within one particular analytical domain. Oh, we're going to compare some factor models. This particular index can cut across different domains of models. We might have a factor mixture model. We might have a growth model. We could have very different competing models, and the AIC can actually cut across a lot of these domains in really helpful ways. Well, one of the biggest advantages of nested models is we get a formal LRT with a p-value, and one of the biggest limitations of nested models is we get a formal LRT with a (laughs) p-value. And what I mean is, is all the baggage that comes with test statistics, p-value, power, effect size is part and parcel of those model comparison tests. And so it's a double-edged sword to be sure. And as you're noting, there are many, many times when we might not have nested model comparisons. The big one that comes up, as you alluded to yourself, is mixture models. Mm -hmm. Mixture models, for reasons we talked about in a prior episode, are not nested. When we compare one latent class to two latent classes to three latent classes, those are not formally nested. So commonly information criteria are used in that setting. Another one that I encountered somewhat recently myself was looking at level one error structures in a GEE analysis, and the details aren't important, Mm. but there are a variety of level one residual structures that you might consider, none of which are nested within one another. Mm. And also, you kind of don't care about the level one error structure in these kinds of analyses, as you want the one that's optimal for the data, you're not making substantive interpretations, It's kind of a shock absorber so that you can do other things. Mm -hmm. Well, you can estimate a dozen of these different error structures, rank order them by information criteria, and pick the one that's optimal for the data. And this particular index doesn't tell you if it's a good model. It just tells you if it is the least sucky among your models. But presumably, if you have some reasonable model in the kind of scenario that you're describing, that might be a very reasonable assumption, then we would pick the model that has the error structure associated with the best balance of fit and parsimony so that we could get to the substantive question of interest with a reasonable shock absorber in place in that example. Mm -hmm. So we've been talking about the AIC here specifically as this culmination of Shannon's work into Kolbach, Liebler, into Akai Ike. There are other information criteria out there as well, and I don't want to minimize those. There's the Bayesian information criterion from Schwartz, which was also in the 1970s. There's a consistent AIC, which adds a sample size adjustment for the behavior of the AIC when you have smaller samples. There's a deviance information criterion, DIC. There are a whole ton of different information criteria that do different things here and there. I don't want to get into all of those. I'm not able to, <laughs> to get into say, all I was going to say, nice, sh- sh- you know, we could talk sh- about that for oh hours, my gosh, but I'm, I'm yeah. not going to, you know, <laughs> take time now to do that. <laughs> but the idea with different criteria here or there, different adjustments here or there, the idea is that you generally want to have some smaller information criterion values when you're making a choice among models. 
Now, one interesting area that there are efforts to try to tug this into, which I think is really, really cool, some work that Chris Preacher has put out there and a lot of other people as well, hasn't quite made its way into our world yet, but it has to do with the idea that the AIC winds up building a correction term that is a function of the number of parameters that you have in your model. But there's a certain assumption that each of those parameters is somehow worth the same amount. And in some work that has been done more recently, like in the last 20 years or so, that idea has been challenged and picked apart a bit. And you and I know that not all parameters are created equal with respect to a particular model, right? So an error covariance in a structural equation model is a parameter, and that only has some effect locally between the residuals of two variables. On the other hand, there is a factor covariance. We might have a two-factor model, and the factor covariance effectively connects or bifurcates these two whole sets of variables. Are you going to tell me that those two parameters are worth the same amount? If the error covariance isn't there, the model kind of goes, eh, you know, the parameters are going to be basically the same, but boy, the fit would sure be better if you threw in that error covariance. You leave out that factor covariance and you could be screwed royally if the variables on one side of your model are related to the variables on another side of the model. So the idea of correcting for model complexity requires you to properly define model complexity. And some of the work, as I said, that Preacher and a number of other people have been doing is to start figuring out what the value of every parameter might be in our model. And part of that has to do with figuring out how flexible a given model might be to adapt to changing circumstances. So imagine just as a quick example, and this might require, I know you don't have a third eye, but let's try to use your mind's eye. Imagine you have variables one and two, they're completely uncorrelated, and they have paths going into variable three. That's the whole model. That model has five parameters, one degree of freedom. On the other hand, you could have a model that says V1 has a path that goes into V3 that has a path that goes into V2 that also has five parameters and one degree of freedom. A really important difference between those two models, though, if you think about all the different possible correlation matrices that you could have, one of those models is a lot more versatile in terms of the parameter values that you could assign to get it closer to the possible distributions that you could have, the possible correlations you could observe than the other. That model that says V1 and V2 are not connected and they independently go into V3, there is no universe where V1 and V2 are correlated if that's your model. So there's this whole corner of the universe where that model just fails hard anywhere V1 and V2 are actually related in real life. On the other hand, a model that says V1 goes into V3 goes into V2 allows for some degree of association between V1 and V2 and V3 by virtue of the structure that that model has. And so there's a lot more of this possible data space that that model could adapt to. So it has a greater, as we might call it, fitting propensity. So now if two people come up to me, one of whom does this model that has much less chance of fitting just by virtue of its lack of flexibility and another model that has a much greater chance of fitting by virtue of its flexibility, who is going to impress me more if they come and say their model fits? Well, not the person with the super bendy model, the person with the model that is much more rigid, even though they both have only one degree of freedom. 
that is going to impress me a whole lot more. So some of the interesting work that Preacher and others are doing is trying to characterize models' complexity in such a way that parameters are not seen as being equal, but rather the structure of the model as a whole and the role that the different parameters play in that is taken into account such that models that are more flexible to cover more of the possible data space are really in some ways penalized. So the models that become the real tests are the ones that have less flexibility. So it's a very interesting area where the whole information foundations that have been laid, there's some pull to try to get it to start to be a bit more complex. And I think it's really interesting. I really like Chris's work on that in thinking about model flexibility. Then it goes back to the surprise. So kind of squaring the circle is, well, how surprised should you be that you got a good model fit when that lives in a part of the grid where darn near anything is going to fit the model reasonably well? Well, not very surprised. But if you get a good model fit in part of the grid where it's pretty restricted and there are not a lot of alternative models that would represent the data in that way, well, then well done. I'm surprised. I'm impressed. Absolutely. So there are parts of your model that are contributing more information to your understanding of what's going on, parts of your model that there's less information associated with it. I love that. Nice tie back. Look at you. See, I was paying attention. There are no birds on the feeder, so I was actually following what you were saying. (laughs) So the purpose of this episode, like a lot of the episodes that we do, is to let you know that things are actually understandable. You know, if you go read an article on some particular state-of-the-art topic, you go, oh my gosh, there's just so much there. But everything that we do, from the most complex models in this field, that field, that field, had to build up from something. And all of them were just these little incremental steps. The stuff that we are talking about here at the end is just a buildup from how can we characterize the information in something as simple as the behavior of a coin In fact, how can we use the metric of the coin, this binary thing, to characterize the amount of information in everything? Now, in the end, we might not be using base two, which would be literally quantifying how much information something has in the metric of how many coins it would take to quantify it. But it's the same type of idea where we have information in things that we do, a certain amount of surprise with respect to some outcomes, less with respect to others. That applies to entire distributions, not just outcomes. And then we can talk about the divergence between those distributions. Which distributions are closer to others? Which ones are farther apart? And how do we make decisions about which distributions might be better? In other words, which models that generated those distributions might be better for us to choose? And what criteria do we use? So I just wanted folks to be able to get a foundation for some of the information kinds of metrics that we use. And I hope this gave a little bit of insight into where some of those things come from. And it gives a mechanism for you to quantify surprise when I contribute to the conversation. (laughs) Right now we have a metric on which, wow, that was a 3.5 surprise Uh that you contributed meaningfully to this conversation. On that note, thanks everybody for tolerating us on this. I hope that was informational, huh? And remember, Quantitude, you're 411 (laughs) on what you need to know. Look at you! That is made up. That's not real. It's real. Hey, what's the 411, hon? What's the 411, I got it going on, I got it going on, hon. Thanks very much. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. We'll see ya. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get the 411 on what's important in your life. And please leave us a review. 
You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. And check out our webpage at QuantitudePod.org for past episodes, playlists, show notes, transcripts, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can proudly fly your colors. You can't see it, but I spug colors with a Q. With Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. A word starting with Q that will remarkably earn you just 20 points in Scrabble. Quantitude has been brought to you by the Nobel Prize Executive Committee, who is pleased to announce a slight modification of Quantitude's suggestion with the launch of the new category titled the Nobel Prize for Non-Awesomeness. The inaugural 2022 recipient will be the newly implemented MLB-designated hitter rule for all National League teams. The conferral of this prestigious award formally brands this decision the travesty that it truly is. Additional funding is obtained by Patrick's Dungeons & Dragons Club, who did indeed kick him out after one evening of play on October 22, 1981, reminding Patrick that you may have thought we were all a bunch of uptight dorks, but you're the one who ended up a statistician and by Christy and Annie, who will now be walking to school each morning so they have plenty of time to think about the implications of secretly texting audio messages without talking to their father first. How many times do we have to talk to our children about stranger danger? This is most definitely not NPR. Seven nine eight five seven nine two. Seven nine eight five seven nine two. Seven nine eight five seven nine two. That is Patrick's phone number.